This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? That was the question asked by the wise men as they had toured on their way to the area of Bethlehem and Jerusalem to find out where this famous star was landing and where the one that the star represented could be found. Maybe we could restate what they asked of Herod. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Well, that's a question that seems to be echoing across the world today. Jewish people are asking the same question. Looking for a Messiah, they say this is the Messianic age. Where is he? that is born king of the Jews. Where is he? And then professing Christians around the world, looking for the second coming of Christ, are saying, where is he? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And to rule the world in righteousness, where is he? Well, the apostle Peter talked about this, and he said people are mocking the idea. We've been asking that question for 2,000 years or for 1,000 years or 50 years or whatever it is. We've been asking that question forever. And people started mocking. Come on, where is he? So you see, there are different ways of asking the question. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he that's born king of the Jews? Come on, where is he that's born king of the Jews? You see... Whether you believe or not depends upon how you ask the question. It also depends upon how you answer the question. Do you believe that there is an answer to the question? Do you believe that there might be an answer to the question, but you don't have a clue? Or do you believe that there definitely is an answer to the question and that you definitely have a clue? Well, today on Viewpoint, we're going to be taking a look at all of this, and I'm glad that you've joined us, Christmas's prophetic clues. Why, what if, what if he is the answer to a series of mysterious what ifs? And why the mysterious what ifs? To help us get into this series of what ifs, Andrew uh, Napolitano, the youngest federal judge ever appointed, no longer serving, I believe, as a federal judge, but is frequently on television, wrote a piece called What If Christmas is Real? So I'd like to share a few excerpts from this piece. It's a fairly long piece, and uh, I'm going to share just uh, a couple of minutes with you. What if Christmas is a core belief in the birth of Jesus Christ, who lived among us and many times offered a freely given promise of eternal life that no believer should reject or apologize for? What if Christmas is the rebirth of Christ in the hearts of all believers? What if Christmas is the potential rebirth of Christ in every heart that will have him, whether currently a believer or not? What if Jesus Christ was born about 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem? What if he is true God and true man? And what if this is a mystery and a miracle? What if this came about as part of God's plan for the salvation of all people? And what if a central teaching of Christianity is that the maker of the universe is a man who came to live among us, God with us? What if Jesus came into the world to atone 
for our sins by offering himself as a sacrifice. What if he was sinless? What if his life was the most critical turning point in human history? And what if the reason we live is that he died and rose again? And what if the government thought he was crazy when he said he was a king, but his kingdom was not of even of this world? And what if he was not crazy but divine? What if when he said that he could forgive sins, he was referring to himself as God? A revered and famous judge, Andrew Napolitano, what if Christmas is real? Well, from our viewpoint, Christmas is real. But many believe, people believe that it's not. Going all the way back about 50 years, maybe even 60 years, we found a series of events throughout American culture, at least, to X out Christmas. So Christmas no longer was spelled Christmas, it was Xmas, Xing out Christ from Christmas. Well, in fact, that's in large measure what's happened. If you look around, you find that Christ has in large measure been Xed out of Christmas. And it began in large measure with Generation X. Then we had Generation Y and Generation Z that is now the most godless generation in the history of America. Xing out Christmas. But Christmas has prophetic clues. And we want to take a look at some of those prophetic clues here today on Viewpoint. So I welcome you aboard. I'm Chuck Chris Myers. Conversation is always with ever-increasing conviction. Talk that transforms. In order to understand our times, perhaps we can go back to the song that says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, O little town of Bethlehem. Well, we could say then, Sleep in Bethlehem is neither still nor silent. It's neither deep nor dreamless tonight. Swords clanged when Jesus was born, and gunfire shatters the night as we await his second coming. It seems that things repeat themselves. Things were not silent when Jesus was born, and they're not silent today or when he comes. The heart of Christmas is love. The hope of Christmas is salvation. The herald of Christmas was the angels. The honor of Christmas was worship. And the hope of Christmas is joy eternally. So why is there an assault on Christmas and an assault on Christ himself? It's because of our times, friends. We're living in the fullness, the ultimate fullness of times. When Jesus showed up the first time, the Apostle Paul said that it was in the fullness of time that God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, a virgin. In the fullness of time. But that was the fullness of that time. That was the time that Jesus needed to be sent. That was the time that he needed to be introduced to the world as the Savior of the world. But then the world had to be given two days, two days in order to deal with the one who had been sent to bring peace on earth, goodwill toward men, 
and to rule and wor- uh, rule and reign over humankind. Two days. Right now, we are almost at two days since Jesus was resurrected. Jesus was resurrected sometime around 20, excuse me, uh, 28 AD to 30 AD, somewhere in there. And we're approaching that very soon, aren't we? So this is all very relevant. Christmas is very relevant. And there's mysteries associated with the occurrence of the birth of Christ that give us clues about the return of Christ. Stay tuned, friends. This is Viewpoint. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. He was born in an obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He then became an itinerant preacher, never held an office, never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college, and he had no credentials but himself. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he remains the central figure in the 20th century, 21st century of the human race. All the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned have not affected the life of people on this planet as much as that solitary life. Now that should tell people a bit, shouldn't it? That should tell people a great bit. Because as Andrew Napolitano said in his What Ifs, he said, what if his life was the most critical turning point in human history? Well, that's exactly the point. There is a reason why the millennia were identified until just recently by before Christ and after Christ, B.C. and A.D., Why was that changed? Because the people wanted to X out Christ from history. That's why. So even that act alone was a prophetic act of demonstrating how the world would reject Christ. It wasn't just the Jewish people that rejected Christ. The Romans rejected Christ. People in America are rejecting Christ in droves. All over the world, people are increasingly rejecting Christ. And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as would receive him, the remnant, the small remnant of people that would receive him, to them he gave authority to become the sons of God, as many as would believe on his name and conduct their lives accordingly. Don't forget to conduct their lives accordingly. Because from a Hebrew viewpoint, if you don't conduct your life accordingly, you don't really believe. That's what believe means. So, he was born in a manger. 
He was born to live and love. He was born to die. He was born to rule and reign. He had specific reasons to be born. Do we fully understand and accept those specific reasons why he was born? Well, we're going to take a look at some of those reasons here today, and I'm glad, again, that you have joined us. It's always conversation that yields to conviction of heart. One of the reasons that he was born is to extend the hope of hospitality to you and to me. That's one of the main reasons Jesus was born. Because God, the Father, has the heart of hospitality. And if we were to go to the book of John, we would find that Jesus gave a message. He gave a message to the people, and he said, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I go, you might go or be also. And then I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let's look at that for just a moment. Let not your heart be troubled. He's speaking to you and to me today. Don't allow your heart to be troubled. You see, we have to determine whether we're going to be troubled or not, whether we're going to allow our heart to be troubled or not. If our heart is, if we allow our hearts to be troubled, then we are at best becoming, what should we say, moderate atheists. Worry is a mild form of atheism, they say. So we can't allow our hearts to be troubled if we really believe in God and believe in Christ. So Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. I want you to put your name in there. Put your name in there. Christ went back to the Father to prepare a place for, and then fill in your name. That's what, that's what Jesus was saying. In other words, it's a very personal thing. Much, Most of the promises of God are to a people group. This kind of promise is both to a people and to an individual. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, Then I'm going to come again, obviously, and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, Jesus was extending the Father's hand of hospitality to you and to me. That is the summary of, the simplest summary of the gospel, the good news. God doesn't want you and me, doesn't want us to be homeless. Because without God, we are homeless and heartless. But with Christ, we have a home. He's going to prepare a place for us. Now, where did he get that imagery from? Well, he got that imagery right out of the book of Matthew, 
Matthew chapter 1, recording the birth of Jesus. What happened in Matthew chapter 1? Do you remember that? In Matthew chapter 1, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together. In other words, they were betrothed. They had not come together to consummate the marriage. They were betrothed to one another. Yet, at the same time, she was found to be pregnant. And that was the problem. So Joseph was thinking, you know, uh, this is not right. Uh, In fact, Mary could be stoned because she's pregnant without being married, without having come together. So she must have had sexual relations with someone else. So he was minded to put her away. And the angel came to Joseph and said, don't be afraid to take unto you Mary, your wife. I want you to think about this. Because this tells us a lot to answer questions that we have about divorce and remarriage. This is a prophetic scripture, friends. It tells us what the whole plan of God was from the beginning concerning our marriage and concerning our marriage to Christ. Our marriage is on earth, a model or symbol of our marriage to Christ. So, God tells Joseph, that Mary will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. And they'll call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So, because of that now, Joseph, being raised from sleep, did what the angel said, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, knew her not. Now, what was the custom in Israel? The custom in Israel was you betroth a wife, and then, rather than consummating the marriage at that point, you go to your father's house, or the place that's prepared for you, to go and prepare the place for your wife. And then when the father says everything is ready, then you can go at a time when your wife does not know the day or the hour, but she knows generally the season. And so she has to be ready. She has to be ready because she's she knows that she has committed herself to be married but that has not been consummated yet. So she's awaiting the consummation. You see, the church supposedly is awaiting the consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding with Christ. But maybe not so much. Maybe there's too much fornication and adultery going on in God's house among the so-called bride, and she's eligible to be stoned under Israel law. Have you ever thought about that, my friend? Some of these realities just don't seem to hit us. So here's the point. Joseph did not 
have sexual relationship with Mary to whom he was betrothed. In other words, for purposes of everyone in the community, he was a married man. But he didn't have sexual relationships with Mary because she was already pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and he wasn't going to mess with that. Jesus went to the Father after his crucifixion and resurrection. He ascended back to the Father and went to prepare a place for us. You and I, to whom he had entered into a marriage betrothal arrangement. We considered ourselves to be betrothed. We said, I do. By confessing Christ as our Savior, we agreed that we would obey him as the husband. We would do his will. We would respect and honor him. And he would treat us as his bride. Until the consummation. Did you know that the consummation of that promise has not been completed? That tells us ultimately, friends, that the elect have not been determined. Because the consummation has not been completed. During the period of time after betrothal and before the consummation, if a Jewish man found his betrothed spouse to be unfaithful or to have not been a virgin, then and only then was he permitted to put her away, divorce her, to put her away. Why? Because he had the right to expect her to be pure, a virgin. That's the only exception in the Bible for divorce. There is no other exception. Notwithstanding what thousands of pastors may say, that's the only exception. And they completely misunderstand and misinterpret the exception so as to bless serial divorce and remarriage. In much the same way that the Pope has just decided to bless homosexual unions. Not much difference, if any. Now, I hadn't intended to say all that. But it speaks to our time, and it comes right out of the birth of Jesus, speaking to our time. And then, in Matthew chapter 2, we know that the wise men came asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? What is the implication of that question? That there is a king of the Jews that the Jewish people were not aware of, other than generically by expecting 
some sort of a Messiah at some point. In Luke chapter 23, Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews to Jesus? And Jesus said, That's who you say. When Jesus was crucified in John 19, the accusation that Pontius Pilate had written above the cross was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. When the religious leaders tried to get him to change it, he said, no, what I have written, I have written. Do you realize that Rome decreed Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, as king? We'll be back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. The heart of Christmas is the heart of divine hospitality. This is the reason why, you see, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, full of grace and truth, to extend an invitation to us. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you might be also. His, the entire message of the gospel is wrapped into these words, an open heart, an open hand, and an open home. So when my wife and I wrote the book, The Power of Hospitality, we put as the subtitle, an open heart, open hand, and open home will change your world. Isn't that what happened with Jesus? That message is continuing to go out today, even though a lot of people don't realize that it's a message of hospitality, welcoming. You see, we were strangers to the commonwealth of faith. All Gentiles had no place from the Jewish mind, no place. In fact, we were considered nothing better than animals, the refuse of the world. But Jesus said, as many as would receive him, he would give authority to become the sons of God, Jew or Gentile. So he extended a, uh, a welcome hand of hospitality to each one of us. And uh, that theme is repeated in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, we find the Apostle Paul listing the various things that are most characteristic of the Christian life. And among them is this, given to hospitality. Not gifted in hospitality, but given to hospitality. Then when Paul wrote to Titus and to Timothy, he said there were two specific requirements for leadership in the church. 
One is to be a lover of hospitality, and the other is to be given to hospitality. Not gifted in, given to hospitality. So I ask you a question today. Are you a lover of hospitality? Are you given to hospitality? Not gifted in. Do you give yourself to hospitality? That's what Jesus did. That was his ministry. That's why God sent him, to extend a welcome into his home. Can you see why this would be essential, an essential requirement for all Christian ministry? And on the near edge of the second coming of Jesus Christ, can you understand why giving ourselves to hospitality might be a very big deal in the mind and heart of God? To prepare the way of the Lord? Hmm. Most of us have never thought of things this way. But when we do, all of a sudden, the scriptures open up to us in ways that we had never before contemplated. In other words, there are mysteries that are hidden, seemingly hidden in the scriptures. And even regarding these end times that go all the way back to the birth of Christ, it set the stage. Christians, Christmases, prophetic Excuse me, clues. Christmas, uh, Christians' prophetic, Christmas's prophetic clues. Uh, a question of why the mysterious what ifs. Excuse me. Don't no understand. Don't understand that. All right. Please forgive. Now we uh, are going to go to the book of Luke, chapter two. One of the great passages revealing an aspect of the birth of Christ and the time and circumstances under which it happened. We've already given a clue concerning this. You see, old little town of Bethlehem was not peace and quiet when Jesus came on the scene. It was not quiet or peaceful at all. The hopes and fears of all the years might have been met there unwittingly in Bethlehem. But Bethlehem was not involved in silent and dreamless sleep. Swords were clanging when Jesus was born because Rome was on the rampage and gunfire is shattering shattering or shuddering the night as we await the second coming of Christ. Just look at what's happening with Gaza and Hamas. In Bethlehem of Judea. Before we go on, I don't want to miss the opportunity to make available to you our book, The Power of Hospitality. It's a life-changing book. Truly, a life-changing book. When the Lord began to reveal that understanding and that message to me, it changed everything. Really, it changed everything. My wife was amazed. It was like a miracle. The revelation of the power of hospitality changed everything in my understanding of the scripture, in how I share it, uh, in what we did in and through our own family. Radical change. 
It's a $16 book, yours for $15, on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. It is well worth that, friends. The power of hospitality. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. You know, it's interesting, the leader of one of the larger uh, care ministries in the world uh, got a copy of that book many years ago. And he's told me a number of times, he said, Chuck, that book is so powerful and so life-changing, I purpose to read it at least once a year. Well, take it for what it's worth. All right. The book of Luke, chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, Caesar Augustus was the emperor who declared himself divine. You see, he was the essential God. He was Pontifex Maximus. He was the first pope. Well, not considered by the Roman Catholic Church to be the first pope, but the first one, I believe, who was called the Pontifex Maximus, from whom the Pope gets his title. Pontiff, you know, Pontiff, the Maximum Pontiff, the Pope. Yeah, that's where it comes from. And Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world should be taxed. In other words, we are going to build an even greater, more cohesive global government. That's what he was saying. And we're going to do that. We're going to tax the whole world. Everything that we can get a hold of and get control of, that's what we're going to do. You see, the power to tax is the power to control. Did you know that? The power to tax is the power to control. So, what is happening today This is a foretaste, a forerunner of what's happening today in the name of the restored or resurrected Roman Empire. You see, Rome never completely died. The Romanesque nations of the world are Europe, the whole, all of Europe, going up to the Baltic nations that have just been received into NATO, or just being received into NATO, and NATO is the greater agglomeration of the resurrected Roman Empire. It began with the European Union, and now it's spread and become NATO. Russia has been given the left foot of fellowship by NATO. So Russia is becoming another counterbalancing power force prophetically spoken of in the Bible. But we're not going to talk about Russia today. We're talking about the resurrected Roman Empire. This is what is happening through this resurrected Roman Empire being led by globalists that are absolutely committed to a one-world, resurrected Roman Empire, global order, 
is they are intent on taking away your ability to control your money and, in effect, claiming it all for them so that it will all be digitized. You won't even be able to touch it. It will do a disappearing act. It'll just be a mere digit, series of digits. So the only way you will be able to have access and control of those digits is if you have chosen to submit yourself to the unholy resurrected Roman Empire, i.e. the new world order. That's what Bill Gates has in mind. That's why he filed that uh, patent back uh, two or three years ago with the U.S. Patent Office to accomplish that very purpose. This puts taxation on a whole new level, friends. It converts all of your money to the control of the government. And you will only be able to buy or sell based upon the whim of the government. And the whim of the government will be conditioned upon whether you receive its mark of allegiance. So what we see happening here in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, is, you can call it a premonition, you can call it a uh, advanced uh, warning concerning what's going to happen at the end of the age, 2,000 years later or two days later from God's viewpoint. But that's what happened. So everybody, Mary and Joseph, had to go to Bethlehem. Joseph went up out of Galilee, to out of the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. He had to sign up. He had to register, just like you and I will be required to do soon. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Again, I welcome you back to Viewpoint. Today we're taking a look at uh, the mysterious what-ifs, so to speak, of the Christmas story. Uh, We began by reading a series of what-ifs coming from the youngest federal judge ever appointed in this country, Andrew Napolitano. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, He seems to be quite a fine fella. 
as I've run across him uh, so many different times. But in any event, uh, he shared with us those words. Now, we're taking a look at the prophetic implications of that which took place at the time of Jesus' birth. First of all, we do not know exactly when Jesus was born. If you claim to know exactly when Jesus was born, then you claim to be the only one who has the exact information on penalty of death that you can swear to under God uh, with, with that privileged information. A lot of people claim they think they do, but they claim they think they do. They do not and cannot know for certain. God would have to come out blatantly and tell them because it has not been made a record of human history. just hasn't been. Now, December 25th, some say, well, December 25th was chosen because it was a pagan uh, holiday and season. And so the uh, early Christians uh, wanted to uh, take away the paganness of that particular time or day and decided to call that the birthday of Jesus. I cannot say that that's true or false or that there's any truth or falsity in it, and neither can you. You can only surmise. Other people have spoken concerning these things, but they didn't have the actual facts either. So we have to be very careful about we say what we say about these things. But let me ask you a question. Does it matter specifically if you know when Jesus was born? Isn't the most important thing knowing that he was born, that he was born? And the things that we've been talking about here today, notice how the tendency is for us to always focus on the things that we can't know and reject and refuse to talk about the things that we can know. Isn't that fascinating? It's just part of human nature, isn't it? And so much of the truth that God is trying to get across to us escapes us because we focus on the wrong thing. Or as my father used to say, we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. All right, so let's carry this further. First of all, let me just say this. What if Jesus was born on December 25th? Or what if he was conceived on December 25th? Where would nine months put his birth? Well, it would put it right about the Feast of Tabernacles, wouldn't it? Yeah. Somewhere around maybe mid to late September. That would be about nine months, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that make some sense? What is the Feast of Tabernacles about? Well, the Lord himself tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And if he tabernacled among us on the Feast of Tabernacles, wouldn't that be foretelling, perhaps, that that's exactly when he'll return again to tabernacle among us? Just a thought, friends. If he was conceived on December 25th or around that time, 
Nine months might put him pretty much at the Feast of Tabernacles. Just a thought. Now, we go back to Luke chapter 2. Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. God said that he was going to cause the Messiah, the ultimate ruler of Israel, to rule forever on the throne of David. So here is Joseph now of the house of David, taking Mary, who is of the heritage also that would be backing up a Messiah. And they're on their way to have to deal with Rome. Now they signed up, they registered with Rome. The problem is at the end of the age, we're told in Revelation chapter 13 and 14, that when Rome exerts its ultimate authority over the minds and hearts of men in the world, it is going to put Caesar Augustus's claim, it's going to make it look paltry, because the new globalistic Roman government will demand that every man, woman, and child receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. That's how you will register your submission to the Roman government. Remember, Rome was in charge when Jesus came, and it'll be in charge when he comes again on steroids. When Joseph signed up to register, he did not commit a sin pledging ultimate allegiance to Rome. But the next time, the Bible tells us that anyone who receives that mark on his hand, right hand, or his forehead will be committing an act of worship and will forever be consigned to perdition and there will be no remedy, no forgiveness, no repentance. It will be the final act of testifying as to your ultimate commitment, belief, and where you're going to put your trust. So, the new world government is not just taxing in general to build streets and send out militia and so on, and the Roman soldiers. It's taxing to provide all your needs, your food, your electricity, your place to live, your pl- your transportation. Because if you don't submit to the government through the mark, you will not have access to any of those things. Because the scripture says that no man may buy or sell. In other words, you won't be able to conduct any element of business without that submission. Now later on in Luke chapter 2, we know that the shepherds came in from the field. They had seen the angels. What a glorious sight that must have been out there in the fields of Bethlehem. And a show, light shone round about them, and the angel said to the, the shepherds that were terrified, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Well, tidings of great joy. The message to you and to me, if we are true followers of Christ, in the midst of a resurrected Roman Empire that intends to rule with the utter totality of the ability of humankind to rule over the souls of men. The angel still says to us through the Lord, fear not. Because I'm bringing you good tidings. Now, you're not necessarily going to receive the good tidings initially. But ultimately, you are going to receive them as good tidings. Now, the shepherds still had to live in Israel. They still had to walk under the Roman authority there. So they didn't quite know what the good tidings were going to be other than that Christ the Savior was born. But that didn't get real practical for them because they still had to live under Rome. The same is true for you and me. We may have confessed Christ as our Savior. We may be seeking to walk with him as Lord in spirit and in truth. But we're still living under Rome, so to speak. And it ain't pretty. And it's getting worse. But the message is still, I bring you good tidings of great joy, ultimately. See, ultimately, which should be to all people. That is, all people that will follow him. The question is whether we will follow when push comes to shove and persecution is increased. That's why I'm writing the book right now, When Persecution Comes. And the angels cried out, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Did peace come? No. Jesus was the prince of peace among them, and peace did not come. Rome continued to rule with an iron fist. The Jewish people were still under their authority and not happy about it at all. But Jesus promised he was going to be the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 told us that. His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David to order and to establish it with judgment and justice from this time and evermore. Well, when is that going to happen? When he comes again. The Bible says he's going to rule the world in righteousness. So if you and I are not living in righteousness today, as one pastor said to me, Chuck, I don't think I even know how to preach righteousness. Well, how in the world he's going to live his, let it lead his people to live righteously? Righteousness is the habitation of God's throne. There is no peace without righteousness, friends. No peace without righteousness. 
So the Prince of Peace, when he comes to rule and reign, is going to reign on the throne of righteousness. We await that wonderful time. But until then, as a song once said back in the 1960s or 70s, until then my heart will go on singing. Until then I'll carry on. Until Christ calls me home. That's our hope, my friends. Our hope is not based on the restoration of American prosperity. We can want that. We can do our best to try to restore the foundations of this country, the spiritual and so on, and I believe in that. But that's not our ultimate hope. And that's not our ultimate peace. Men will cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace until the one who is called the Prince of Peace will rule and reign. And that brings us to our final application. There is one coming who is going to promise peace on earth. You can read about him in the book of Daniel. He is called the Little Horn. We commonly refer to him as the Antichrist. And through the promise of peace, the Bible said he will destroy many. Oh, but he'll come in with promises of peace. The whole world will go after him, thinking he is the greatest, wonderful thing that ever happened, speaking great things. But I'll tell you, when he gets a hold of things, all hell will break loose. When Christ comes, my friends, all heaven will break loose. I hope you'll wait until that time, and in the meantime, rejoice for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Freely you have been given, freely receive. Let's live out the spirit of Christmas in real time. God bless. Be a blessing. Get a copy of The Power of Hospitality right there on our website, saveus.org. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.